Coaches Network. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. What's happening, people? Coach Yas here, and we are back for yet another phenomenal episode of the Coaches Network. So I hope everyone's well. But before we get to that, you know, it's been yet another week of exciting games in the Euros as well. And it looks like for the first time in a long time, a trophy could actually be coming home for the England senior side. 1966, the last time England were in the final of a major tournament. But you've got to give it to Gavin Southgate and his boys for this competition so far. You know, they've done some great work. And they do have their work cut out for them in the final against a well-organised and defensively sound Italian side. Led by Roberto Mancini, who's done a fantastic job himself. You know, I'm beating a 30-odd game since taking over. But before we get to today's episode, I just want to give a real shout out to my, my player of the tournament so far. And people can say what they want about him. Um, you know, there's all this talk about Kane and whatnot. But in the last couple of games, in particular, you know, from the from minute one, big up the boy from Brent Raheem Sterling. He's been he's been pivotal so far, and in my opinion, not getting anywhere near off credit. For his performances that he should do But that's a discussion for another day And I'm sure he'll be answering his critics again This Sunday in the final But moving on I want to get on to the review of the week and This one was a, a review that was left on Twitter recently From ACB underscore football coach Or footy coach rather ACB footy coach says Recently discovered the coaching network For, some, for digesting some experienced coaches insights On my way to sessions I'm really enjoying the variety of insightful conversations with top coaches available. Highly recommended to any coaches if you haven't given this a go yet. Well, thank you, ACB, for that. I love it. Really appreciate it. And I hope some of the followers have started to give it a go already because there's been some phenomenal conversations and guests on the show so far. And there's more gems to come in the coming weeks and months. And on that note, guys, please keep leaving the reviews. Let me know how you're finding the show, what your key takeaways are. Or whether there's any particular topics you'd like to see or hear discussed on the show, uh, even any particular guests you might have on, on, on your minds, let me know, man. Definitely. Um, every single one of you is appreciated, guys. So, shout out to everyone leaving reviews so far. And I promise I will get around to everyone reading out those reviews. Every single one of you have been a massive part of this journey. And on that note, if you are currently enjoying the content, please head over and support the Patreon where you can get access to some exclusive member only content. Make sure you're following us on all our channels. So that's Coaches Network or The Coaches Network on Instagram, The Coaches Network on Twitter, and even The Coaches Network on YouTube. You know, I've been real slack with that recently, but I'm going to start getting all our episodes out for you guys on YouTube as well. Um, also, a big shout out to everyone who's been getting in touch regarding the mentoring program. It's been overwhelming, but you know we're getting there one step at a time. So anyone who hasn't got in touch yet, or if I haven't got back to you, I promise I will get back to you in the next couple of days. Um, that's just regarding you know the one-to-one coach mentoring programs that I'm running at the moment. So definitely get in touch regarding that, guys, because um, I've just opened up a couple more slots for that too. But on to today's episode, guys. And today's guest is Dr. Martin Toms, but I'll leave the rest of the intro to him. And finally, just a reminder that he could just be coming on for the England side. So good luck to Southgate and his team. Enjoy today's episode, guys. Speak soon. Have a great week, great month, great year, and a phenomenal life.
Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. I'm here for another episode of the How To Series, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Dr. Martin Toms. Afternoon, Martin. How are you? I'm good, yes. How are you doing? You okay? Very well, thank you. Thank you for being with me today. I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Um, but before we get into that, Martin, I just want to you know, give you an opportunity just to let the listeners know a bit about who you are, what you're doing, how you've got to where you got to, essentially. Okay, thanks. Yeah, no problem. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Martin Toms. Um, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham in School of Sport and Exercise Science. Um, and I guess, and I think that's a really interesting question you ask, I'm actually somebody who started off as a coach, who ended up trying to better understand, in my case, young people, and ended up working at university, teaching other people about the process of understanding young people. Um, so I was very much um, a, a multi-sport um, player as a child. Um, and then I really began to get into coaching. Um, and I did coaching uh, professionally for a period of time. And then I ended up trying to find, I wanted to understand more, particularly about grassroots coaching. So I ended up doing some research. I did a master's degree and that turned into a PhD and a teaching degree. Um, and then I find myself working at university um, being able to do research and talk about it on, on a more of a global scale. So I've been really, really fortunate, really fortunate. Awesome. Thank you for that brief, um, I guess, biography, if you like. Um, Martin, obviously, we're here today to talk um, a little bit about your research areas, more specifically the engagement and participation of young athletes. Um, so kind of maybe just starting from the top then, you know, what, what, what is the difference between engagement and participation from your perspective? And then maybe we can kind of diverge from there. <laughs> that's that again another good question I'm not, my my immediate thought is actually the thing that sprang to mind when you said that was actually the smile so if you can get kids to smile then you know they're engaging and not just participating um, and that I think as a coach was always my mantra I would rather um, leave a coaching session with all the kids being happy and then wanting to come back the next week um, than being a position where we've, uh, I don't know, where we've won a game easily or uh, or lost a game or whatever else. That, the whole point for me is making sure we do get kids to engage because if we can get kids to engage at a young age, then they will end up being our elite athletes in the future. So it really is this idea about it, in order to understand uh, why kids want to participate and, and why they want to engage, we've got to understand the the importance of making it fun and engaging in the first place. Nice, no, some great, great, great point then. You know, you know, from an engagement perspective and making it fun, what are some of the key things that we start to look for when we're looking to do that firstly? Um, and obviously, you know, your, your research is generally about young people and that from that perspective, but I'm thinking more from a perspective of a young athlete. Um, you know, if we're now... You know, with the game, games or sport, the industry growing the way it has. You know, and in my background is a football coach, um, and we're seeing more and more uh, frequently that teams or uh, in the elite game anyway, um, the professional game, they seem to be picking up players at a younger and younger age, um, even as young as you know five, and you know, dare I say it, some others maybe underhandedly picking them up even younger than that. So, uh, at that stage, can we really tell? Or I don't think we can really tell if anyone's going to be, a, I guess, a sure, um, surefire gamble, if you like, um, to, to make it as a professional footballer in that respect. But is there any key indicators that we're looking out for there? And, you know, I guess in, in the initial stages, you know, one of the other things you talked about was 
this idea about early specialization how important is that and it, or should we just like you said go back to just focusing on getting a smile out of these people yeah i, mean, I think it's a really uh, really pertinent topic at the moment and i know uh, recently there there was some documentary made i can't remember what it was called i literally saw it on on twitter a, a little while ago but but a co good colleague um um talks about it mark um what is that sounding now that's terrible isn't it um talks about it as being a race to the bottom uh, when we come to do this because we do have this huge problem of clubs almost trying to make sure the opposition can't find a player by trying to get them younger it's a bit of an arms race uh, and we know even at elite level that there is even at junior level to elite level there is very little correlation between an elite junior and an, an, an adult elite um and that's a real problem because all we're doing is effectively for a better word the um athletes who are the young players who are coming through are being ruined by a system that doesn't allow them to sample other sports or other activities um, and focuses on just one thing with so much pressure at a young age. Selling the dream is easy, uh, but people don't actually think about the implications. There, there is a line of thinking to say that actually what we're doing is no different to what we used to criticise in some of the Eastern Bloc for their methods of, of identifying talent, and that's just cram them in, and you might get one gold medalist at the end of it, and that just proves your system works. So we've got to be really, really careful how we um, how we engage with this, um, and what we're actually trying to do, because ultimately what we want is we want sport to be there for the next generation. And if we don't have the large numbers of kids just being able to go and play and enjoy themselves, they're not going to come back next time there's going to be no club in the future. I'm very much of the mind of saying we need to be able to give everybody an equal opportunity to play sport. It doesn't matter if they're going to become the next elite athlete, uh, the next England player, or the next referee, or the next coach, or the next club administrator, or groundsman. It doesn't matter. But if we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves in a Darwinian cycle that there are going to be fewer and fewer clubs because we have fewer and fewer kids who become parents who don't have a good experience of the game, who don't send their kids to play. Um, so we know already with the pandemic and the lockdown that that's had a, a significant impact on, on kids and, and junior clubs because kids have found something else to do. So we've got to be really, really mindful that this, this engagement um, becomes really important. And this idea about specialization is just a game of risk. Um, I, I put on Twitter quite a lot. Um, one of my original tweets I think I put out, God, goodness knows how long ago, was about if you sent your kid to school and they were only allowed to study one subject, how developed and how good are they gonna be when they get older? No, no, you make a great point there. And if you look at it from that perspective, what you tend to see is also that, you know, they put so basically put all the eggs in one basket. And then if for, for some reason, a very likely um, outcome, they don't go on and uh, become professional footballers in this case, you've got nothing to fall back on. Absolutely. No other experiences to kind of, you know, uh, I guess work off. And I guess, you know, that kind of just lends itself to the idea that actually, you know, if you are gen 
generically generally participating in different sports and activities some of the benefits that that also brings so yeah, I, I just wanted to know from from that if you've got any i guess uh, research that you've come across or that you that you that you've conducted yourself where it actually it, it demonstrates a clear link to i, I guess the benefits of multi-sports at a young age rather than uh, general you know than early specialization into one sport yeah. um, you know i think from my experience yes you know there is obviously going to be always anomalies and there's always going to be successes in in either in either method however you know you hear of so many cases it, 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 especially when it comes to football that especially when they get to that maybe that that you know that teenage age of you know maybe the 14 to kind of 16 to 17 sort of age range um on the cusp of maybe being offered a scholarship and whatnot but quite a lot of the successful ones have actually come from dual sport backgrounds yeah um so just curious to maybe know a little bit more, more about that if there's any research that, oh, that, that. <laughs> i could bore you for hours there is loads of research um mm. around this i mean the so a colleague and i we did one of the one of the first studies actually way back in about 2010 it was published um and but it's one of the few studies that have been first studies and few that have been done in the uk so we actually looked at over a thousand um sports people in the uk and we we identified those who made it to representative level and by representative we meant um county or regional or even national um that if they played at least two or three sports at the age of um 11 13 and 15 they were more likely to make it as a as a an 18 year old playing representative uh, and that would suggest and if you think about it, um there there's an awful lot of common sense within that when you think about in the uk in particular we we play seasonal sports historically so in the summer you might play cricket tennis athletics in the winter it might be rugby or football um, and our curriculum, our, our culture, if you like, of sport has allowed us to do that. Um, and that's been a really, really positive thing because it means we have been allowed to um, get lots of motor skills, uh, diverse motor skills, take on lots of other um, transferable skills, I guess. Uh, we're talking about a little bit about talent transfer that we can move from one sport to the other. Um, and I guess maybe we're lucky in the UK because of the weather and that's caused it. Um, you could say the same sort of thing over in New Zealand, perhaps, or even even Australia and certainly parts of Europe. Um, the problem we do have is where you have other countries where they don't have the seasonal change that we do. Um, is they may tend to focus on particular sports or activities. Now, one of the arguments that we've uh, we've had in the UK in particular about our, our Olympic medal success. Um, compared, considering the size of the nation we are compared to uh, the likes of the USA, Russia and, and China, um, one of the arguments has actually been, well, actually our, our young athletes have had a really good multi-sport background. Um, and that puts them in a much better place to be more resilient psychologically um, less chance of repetitive strain injury because they're actually doing a number of different activities. Um, and actually, you can, if when you get annoyed with your sport, you can go and do something else without worrying about it. Um, and that gives us a huge opportunity then for, for kids to be able to do that. And as you say, now we've got the problem of, of kids going into specialising early. We're beginning to slowly lose that edge 
and you wonder now what that's going to do for the next generation. No, it's a great point. And I think, you know, I think the fact that you have got loads of different sports that we can, I, I guess, experience in this in this country is obviously a fascinating opportunity for us as well. I'm, and I'm curious, you know, just something off the back of what you just said there, where is there any any data out there that maybe suggests as to more specifically football in this case, but in any in any in any walk of um, the sporting industry that there's a, maybe a, a pair or, or a culmination of particular sports that actually help support or have a, a have a track record, if you like, of um, helping athletes become more proficient generally, or if you get what I mean. I do. I get in a sense you're to, to to use some of the terminology that we often use. We're talking about almost strategic sampling, where you can put a bundle of sports together that yeah. will help you become elite in one of them. But there's a good crossover. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. So so there are some good examples. I mean, if you literally take things like um, diving, gymnastics, um, and trampolining, then there's clearly crossover between those ones. That's quite mm. useful. Mm. Um, we, I, I do, I've done a lot of work for, for the last 20 odd years with the PGA in golf. So we did quite a, a big study a while ago where we profiled um, about 2000 um, category one golfers. And we worked out what sports would be quite good for them to play to be, to become good golfers. Now it doesn't mean that the people who played the other sports didn't also play golf and, uh, and, and mix and match a little bit. But when you think about it and you do this in a real strategic way, you can understand how it works. So the, com the most common sports to become a good golfer, it turns out, are football. That's probably because the majority of the, pop of, of the sample were male. And it's probably because they were all going to be late teenagers and that's what they did as a kid. But it's health and fitness. The second one that was really popular uh, or, or most prevalent with those guys was actually racket sports. So table tennis was really popular and a bit of squash and a bit of tennis and a bit of badminton. Now you can imagine, okay, so we've got a slightly side on action. So you can understand there may be a bit of crossover. Maybe we don't understand the mechanics of how it works in enough detail. And maybe we need to go into some of that skill acquisition stuff a bit more. But the really interesting one for me on this was um, playing snooker or pool. And you start thinking, as you're thinking at the moment, how does that work? But if you think about it, when you're on the putting green, or when you're on the green to putt, putt out, you need to work out your angles. You've got a static ball that you're hitting with, a, with an implement. You've got to get your angles right. You've got to work out the weighting, how hard you hit it. So quite clearly, there's going to be some sort of useful skill out of that. So what we're now beginning to think about is, okay, what, as you said earlier, what packages of sports can we put together that really work? Now, if you go and look at football, I don't think there's any research on football, possibly because the system within football actually tends to suggest you shouldn't do it, which is a bit ridiculous. But then if you look at the case of somebody like Jack Butland, did you, actually out of interest, do you know what Jack Butland's main sport was? Uh, don't quote me. Um, I know a lot of the goalkeepers um, have had a lot of experience playing cricket, for instance. Um, was that the case for Jack Butland? Yeah, rugby. Okay. Again, so, but it's, it's not. It's not. I think it doesn't really surprise me. I mean, if I, I just mean, on a basic level, 
some of the things that you take away from rugby is obviously the, the bravery element. Absolutely. To handle the ball itself. Uh, yeah. The fact that you're ready to run towards your opponent who's running towards you. Yeah. So one v ones and things like that. It's, you know, it's, it's, I think you know, I never, I never actually considered that element of it. But I think even another point that you mentioned earlier, which I, I guess kind of went over my head a little bit, and uh, in that I've never actually considered it, is actually yeah, there probably will be a difference, but based on the gender as well, mm-hmm. um, because obviously boys, you know, males do tend to play a lot more football than than females. So I guess on that note, then what what what, what would replace maybe football as a dominant sport in the a data for the females? Uh, on the on the golf, we don't know because the the, the sample was quite small. Right. Okay. Uh, when it came to females, because the of the number of females who were at that level. Sure. But you what the ones we did have probably mainly played hockey. Right. Okay. So That's again, you've got this little bit of crossover, haven't yeah. we? But the the issue we have, and I think the thing that we need to to try and push forward is that we should think about sampling as a bit of enjoyment and a bit of getaway, mm. but also ability to cross-fertilised skills and experience that you can you can move on from. So I, I spent a little bit of time a few years ago working at Birmingham City um, Academy um, and they have, or they had, I don't know they're still doing it, linked in with Warwickshire County Cricket Club and also Wasps Rugby. Because you can see there is potential child transfer. And at the end of the day, it doesn't... We can't be parochial about this. If one of those kids goes and joins another sport and does really one of those ones, we've won. It's not about us, uh, and, and it's not. A, it's more about the sport and, and the individual themselves. So we we mustn't, and, I, and football is really guilty of this. We mustn't pursue, We mustn't allow individuals who get released from a contract in football to think that they're a failure. No, you make a great point. Then I, you know, kind of just another thing that just popped into my mind as you were speaking was, yeah, okay, we're, you know, generally we're looking at the idea of sampling different sports to almost create a package of experiences, so to speak, that can be then eventually transferable. Um, one, uh, at what stage do we start to maybe start to specialize? How broad should that package actually um, give them? Or how how much variety should be in that package? And over what length of time is it a case of, as an example, right, we're going to do six weeks of three sports here and then we're going to do the next six weeks of three new sports or is it a longer period? Is it maybe adding more sports into the six weeks over a longer period or a shorter period? But I'm really, one thing that's really, uh, I guess, on my mind is more specifically is how much attention are we then paying to within that, the type of coaching they're going to be receiving because I'm very, I'm very conscious to say um, in different environments, you're going to get different types of uh, coaching and different types of, uh, uh, you know, if you like activity going on um, as opposed to, and actually actually act, activity actually going on as opposed to there being stop, start, stop, start and actually getting uh, game time or play time, if you like. Um, so I'm very conscious how much of an impact or how much of that's been looked at when actually assessing some of this data um, and if any actual uh, uh, consideration has been made and placed specifically on the type of coaching that takes place in these environments as well? Uh, it's a really, really difficult one to answer, I think, because everybody develops in, in different ways. Um, so if you, if you take the, the biopsychosocial model that we, uh, we discussed and we did a review of, uh, of talent development, a number of colleagues about 10, 12 years ago, 
uh, one of the things we do know is that we people that we, we don't develop in the same linear rate as individuals. I, I was as tall as I am, which is not very tall, about five foot nine at the age of 11. I was a monster at the age of 11. By the time I was 15, I was, I was tiny compared to all my peers. But actually that period in between actually almost stereotyped me in the position I play and the sports I did. So we've got to be aware that there are individual differences on maturation rates um everything that we can consider to do with individuals own development uh, so that's one thing second thing as well is <laughs> no coaching experience is the same and the way that we experience coaching as individuals also differs so this becomes quite complicated so for example i was involved in a study uh 15 years ago um, of ice hockey in finland and what we identified was that uh, the people who uh, who had um, a laissez-faire coach, um, if they also had laissez-faire parents, they got on far better with that coach than if somebody had strict parents, and vice versa if you had a strict coach. So a lot of your upbringing, your experience as an individual often dictates how you experience coaching, sure. which is why everybody experiences coaching in, in a very different way. Sure. But we also then have to add on the coach's experience. Now, one of the arguments we, we constantly have is um, a lot of uh, coaches go off and do their level one coaching award. Um, and quite rightly, they want to get involved and, and do everything else. They go to a club and they're put with the youngsters. Now, the, nothing against doing a level one because we've all been there, we've all done it, and you have to experience that. But the problem we're doing is we're putting the least experienced coach with the most vulnerable in every sense and certainly the sporting engagement a group of kids whereas we probably want one of the most experienced coaches working with that group to really engage them in enthusiasm the problem that we create though is what sort of social status does somebody who's really experienced as a coach have working with a group of under nines when they could be working in an academy. Yeah, I, I get that. I, you know, there's two questions I've got for you, and I'm, I'm making notes so I don't forget them. But the first one is, um, you talked about obviously, you know, there's so many different variables in terms of how people experience coaching. Um, how much consideration has been given to maybe the potential learning style of those individuals within that environment? Um, obviously, we've got the coaching style itself, um, and you talked about maybe the, the, the typing, the type of parenting and uh, coaching style being maybe in alignment or, or, or lacking alignment um so that's you know obviously a, a major key but i'm very curious to understand whether the learning styles have actually been considered and how those impact on that engagement and participation factor <laughs> uh, learning styles obviously one of the big areas of debate at the moment as to whether learning styles actually exist in the way that they're often referred to um but yes we we don't often look at maybe learning preferences um, and this, again, is where we have that problem of your, your level one coach going in and coaching in the same way to everybody else when we need to be doing it more of understanding individual sure. needs. Sure. Uh, that way. And that goes all the way through, all the way up to, to, to under 18, to, uh, to adult as well. Yeah. Where we don't really understand who works best with praise and who works best with a little bit of criticism. 
I think you know you make a great point there, and I think it's, it's obviously everyone's got individual differences in that respect. And kind of I want to bring it back to that set, that last point you was making there about um, the experience of the coach and where where they should maybe sit across the spectrum of ages, if you like. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges we have specifically in football, I can't really speak too much in other sports, but um, I wouldn't challenge. I would be you know I wouldn't be too shocked if it was very similar, in that generally it's viewed that the higher up the ladder you're going in terms of the ages the more experienced the coach should be. And um, if football in particular, generally in this country anyway, tends to also attach a larger compensation package in terms of a salary. Um, so that, that I think that also has a massive part to play. But um, I think one, th- one thing that I'm very conscious of and I've been, observed, observed over recent years, more specifically in football again, is that actually as the coach education system has evolved and developed over the last few years in particularly, it's moved away from this idea of um, the coach having to coach in a specific way or delivering in a specific way, but moving more to the concept of the coach being able to deliver in their own ways based on the players that they're working with or the groups of people that they're working with um, in a way that supports those people in that environment best. Um, and I guess yeah. helping them, uh, I guess, develop a, a, a clear rationale as to why they're going to work in the way they're going to work, which I think is a fantastic thing. Um, it does have some of its flaws. And I think one of the flaws is that maybe some of the, the technical information may not be up, up, at the same level as it once was potentially. Um, and I consider myself quite fortunate because I've been through kind of both pathways in some of the old style and some of the new style. Um, so there's a lot more freedom now. And I think one of the real benefits of that is that we're now going to start to create, yes, you might get still experienced coaches, but also maybe more specialist coaches. So yeah. where you might have a coach who's got 10 years experience, they might actually be best suited for 14s to 18s because that's where the majority of the experience lies. And yeah. that's the problem. Um, I was quite fortunate for me in my, in my, in my instance, because when I first started, I was working with a group of under 14s and I've never really been overly passionate about working with some of the younger ones. Um, if we look at the foundation phase as an example, I've never really been passionate about working with them. Not that, not to say that I don't feel I can do a job there, but um, it's almost, well, I have to be passionate about what I'm doing for you to get the best out of me. Now, if I can't give you the best out of me, then yeah. I shouldn't really be the one in, in working with you, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, no, 100% that does. Uh, and I think the FA have been really good in their, their development of modules and everything else has been great. So people like Nick Levitt did a great job there trying to take things forward and everything else. A lot of this comes back to the the old Sports Coach UK 4x4 matrix that they had way back, oh, probably 15 years ago was the intention, um, where actually you could become a, notionally at the time, a level four coach, but with kids. Um, which which is brilliant. And I know there are some, some, I mean, we've got some postgraduate students and PhD students and prof doc students who are looking at this sort of thing anyway about actually how important it is to be a really good junior coach um and as you say that the assumption is often that the the further up you go you do your level one you coach the kids you do your level two they get slightly older level three slightly older level four you might be working at the academy level so there's all, often that that belief that you can only improve by doing the older kids whereas actually we need the really good coaches as well to be working with the really young ones. And, and I will always argue this. Um, and what we need to think about is why, and you've almost explained a little bit for yourself about coaching under 14s. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, for me, just to, just to step in on that one, sorry, Martin. Um, 
I think the experience bit is very key, but I think it's also the specialism part, which is probably more important. Um, I, I feel yeah. like I can do a job with nines to nines to elevens as an example, and I know I can do a good job with them. However, I'm probably not a best place person. Uh, I, I certainly, you know, I, I, I asked you the question at the top of this conversation off the air. You know, if I was to deliver a TED talk, it wouldn't be on nines to elevens. Yeah. My TED talk will probably be on maybe 14 to kind of 19s because that's where I've had a lot of my experience and I've, I would feel, uh, you know, I'm probably not an expert, but that's probably what my specialist area would be. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And I think what we then need to do and consider is, okay, how can we do that with coaches and actually work out? So in a, in a sense, it's no different to going to a teacher training college and asking people why they might be focusing on kindergarten or um, or year five or second or key stage two or key stage, however you want to do it, that there's something inherent within us that helps do that. Now, I, I've been doing a little bit of work with, with sort of the Ledbetter company and David Ledbetter, Ledbetter Golf and looking at their junior programs. And what we're trying to do is actually work out how we can best maybe not profile coaches but understand coaches to work out where their specialist area actually is because we can then put them with that particular age group um, or at least give them the opportunity to coach that particular age group where they understand what it is on that then how much consideration should be then given to cultural elements oh enormous um because obviously you know for me um I look at certain cultures and, you know, I, I get, I don't know, I'll give you a very poor example, maybe, but as simple as having a handshake in some cultures, it's, it's a no go. We don't do that. Or, you know, over here, generally we look at, a, a, I guess, a good indicator of communication, eye contact. Yeah. Some cultures it's considered absolutely forbidden and rude to be able to, you know, to actually even consider doing things like that so uh, you know how much should we maybe paid attention to from those elements I, I think I think enormously um, and one of the things that that really gets my goat sometimes is where we try and pick up a particular model or development package from one country and, and slap it onto another and expect it to work um, so I think not only within country but across countries we need to understand that cultural thing um, and I think that's a really, really important point. I mean, I'm currently doing quite a lot of work in India, uh, which is absolutely fascinating around that, not just within India, but actually within certain parts of India, there are considerable differences. So a football coach who maybe comes from Kerala down on the south might behave entirely differently if they were to go and coach football up in uh, Patiala um, or the Punjab or something like that because of different cultural backgrounds and everything else so even within country it's really complicated but but I think you're spot on with that that issue about culture and I'd also add in gender as well because one thing we we tend to forget is that in in the UK females tend to be the over the majority of primary school teachers are female so maybe we need a lot more female coaches at primary school age because um, they are maybe, or for certainly there may be some who are better at getting on with the kids than maybe some of the adults, some of the male adults might be, and vice versa. So we need to understand our coaching 
package and our individuals and our individual coaches far more than we do. And we need to reward them for being an under sevens coach. Yeah, as no, much I'm... as we will reward them for being an under 17 coach. Because without the under seven, they ain't going to be an under 17. No, you're, you're spot on. And I think you make some great points there. And I think, you know, just on that last one that you touched on there, it, it, it's maybe documented quite well, or maybe not. Uh, in maybe some of the other countries around Europe, they actually, uh, you know, you actually get, as you would, you know, as you put it previously, maybe some of the more experienced coaches at the younger age groups because it's pivotal. It, you know, it's the foundation stage for a reason. Um, you know, it's the golden years for a reason because that's probably where you're going to have the most impact and whatever happens at 16, 17, 18 and so on and so forth is because of what happened at 9, 10, 11. Um, and maybe even as, as young, young as that. Um, so that's a great point, but I guess, you know, coming back to another point you just mentioned there on the idea of, uh, in this country more specifically, you know, I'm not sure what it's like in other countries, but I would assume it's not too different in having more, maybe more female teachers at primary school. It's a yeah. great point. Um, and one that maybe often is, is, is overlooked in terms of how beneficial or how that can be then transferred into this sort of context. So I guess off the back of that, we're now open a different kind of worms here because basically, you know, there's, there's already a large underrepresentation of uh, coaches from many different backgrounds, but more specifically from, uh, you know, if we're now looking at the female gender as well. So I mean, it's very interesting to kind of highlight that, that even in the female game, that's been dominated by men. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, what, you know, maybe this is going a little bit off topic, but it's, you know, it's an interesting point for me to kind of maybe discuss with you. What do you think might need to be done to shift perspectives of people who are in these organizations and in academies or center of excellences or whatever you want to call them um, to the point where actually we're going to now shift it so that there is, I guess, better suited people based on what's actually happening in the world to deal with those people in, in those environments, in this case, young athletes or more specifically young footballers. Yeah, uh, and I think that that's a really good point because of the, the problem, the, one of the, the people who can solve the problem are at the top end. What we need to get them to understand is that journey that they went on, but they've probably forgotten about. They will probably be remembering if they played football when they signed the contract, not the dozen years or so beforehand when they were learning and everything that they gained from that. Um, so we've almost got, and I do I honestly do think we've almost got to go all the way back and understand what happened when we were younger, even to the extent of, uh, and I talk an awful lot about this with our students, um, understanding where you've come from has a big impact. So we, we, we under consider the role of, I mean, relative age effect is obviously a classic one that we could talk about. Um, birth order effect is obviously also a good one. And actually some of the pragmatics around uh, where you are and what you do. I'll, I'll give my example and you'll, you'll see Worcestershire County cricket ground in the background uh, here. My main sport was cricket. Um, I was a batsman because my brother, who was seven years old, was a fast bowler. Now, if you if you imagine back then, what was my brother trying to do to me? No, you make a great point because it's a question I was going to ask earlier. How much of an impact does A, siblings have on this? Um, and not just siblings, but maybe what order of the siblings and individuals in and whether they are male or female, um, for one. Uh, the second thing, obviously, the, the characteristics and the dynamic of that relationship as well. Um, and I'm very curious, you know, from having uh, you know my own personal experiences, I've got um, children from different relationships. How does that impact? And if there is any research on that at all, 
and more specific, even if they're not from a uh, different relationship, but also more specific, they may be living separately. Um, obviously that's going to have an impact, but a, a real key one I want to kind of maybe think about as well is the age gap maybe between the parent and the child. Um, Cause it's just making me think there's probably so many different factors here that are going to impact on the participation or, um, and engagement. And, and, and why I mentioned the cultural aspect previously is because uh my you know well my family weren't born here predominantly i mean i was born here my you know, my mum my mum wasn't born here my my father wasn't born here but he came here at a young age so he's he's very uh you know in tune with the culture here my wife my mum didn't come here until she married my dad um but they've always had very different experiences themselves to what i've had and that will then change for my children and so on and so forth so i'm very interested to know from you know, from those different, you've got the siblings there, you've got the age gap, you know, there's so many different things that can kind of go off and have an impact. I'm just, you know, I'm yeah. Good to it, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's funny you say that. Could we get to the stage where actually we're beginning to social engineer our next set of athletes? Um, I mean, just go off on a tangent. Um, the the cyclist. Great point, though. It is a great point because I've also often think is, is there someone out there, you know, that, that has actually thought about having a child with a particular type of person to just to kind of get you know create a better a better athlete if you like or a better uh, mathematician or whatever that might be do you know what i mean yes yeah that, that, and that does happen and there are there are stories in, in certain countries that um the two elite athletes are being almost forced to have children in the hope that you create another elite athlete or super um, uh, and obviously when you think about it that's that's idea that, that's an ideal way of doing it but the, the other thing I was about to say was the, the Kennys, the cyclists. Um, they had a baby. You can imagine it'd be a great cyclist. But the baby was born apparently right at the end of August before September. So you think of relative age effect. And that child's going to be the youngest in that age group. Like, oh, a couple more days later, it could have been a, a gold medalist because of, of the whole relative age effect issue. But, but I really do honestly think that we, we don't understand enough about all the things you've been saying, the dynamics of the family. And it doesn't have to be immediate family, it can be extended family as well, depending on the context. So my example of my brother, my brother was a fast bowler, he wanted to knock my head off. Every day, seven years older, coming in bowled in the back guard, knock my head off. Um, so when it came to playing cricket, what did I become? Well, naturally, it was going to be better because what you had to deal with is just get the ball away from me. <laughs> yeah. An opening bat, my favourite shots, pull and hook away from the body. Yeah. Perfect. So actually, it. he created me as a cricket. So you go down, down all these weird things. Yeah. I'm right-footed, but the way our garden was laid out was um, we had a, a, a greenhouse. Uh, where my dad used to grow his prized tomatoes and stuff. Yeah. And if I was right-footed, I was in danger of hitting the window and smashing a window, and boy, would I got told off. So I ended up trying to play right-footed on the left-hand side, so right. I was always kicking away from that. Awesome. It's amazing to think that that little adjustment is obviously now going to change the trajectory of your whole cricket career. Oh, yeah, and the, the whole thing has changed dramatically. So... Mm. Before I got injured, even, even when I played five-side football, which I'm hoping to go back to, I can't play on the right. I have to play on the left. Right. It's really bizarre. 
So I've think about nightmares of uh, uh, visions of a, a greenhouse in the corner of you. Absolutely, don't, don't, yeah, yeah. But those visions came true sometimes. A oh boy, yeah. Okay, there's my pocket money gone for a few weeks. Um, but but if you think about that and you think about your own upbringing and background, and maybe I don't know if you have siblings or anything like that, and then how that works, and you look at any siblings who played sport to a decent level, mm. um, you're never going to get two goalkeepers in a family you're always going to get a striker and a goalkeeper aren't you yeah yeah so we've always got these these things but we do know from the evidence that the younger sibling is always the best it, in the majority of cases always the best player mm -hmm. because they've had to play up to mm. their older siblings level maybe not just with their older sibling but also with their older siblings friends and you're speaking more specifically, correct me if I'm wrong, or from a technical perspective. Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. So they're more likely to go further because they've they've had to work harder to in order to achieve that. Right. So then... And that goes across a lot of sports. We, we had a, a master's student who is a coach in one of the women's teams um, who did a work around some of the elite England footballers and identified that the majority of them actually have an older brother. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, quite, it's quite common that. Um, so I guess, you know, that leads me to, what, I guess, a, a slightly different direction, but off the back of that, we're seeing this um, in line with the way society has changed. There's uh, decreasingly and very rapidly uh, the amount of people that are playing football as a sport on the streets. Um, so it's turned a lot of the football world's attention to, right, how do we create that environment again? How do we create that sort of thing? And a lot of clubs are, I guess, uh, going down this idea of creating more street football experiences where you do get to maybe uh, get challenged and play with kids that are older than you. Or maybe even in some cases, I remember when I was maybe 10, 11, I was playing with sometimes 19, 20 and maybe fully grown adults. Um, and, you know, academies are trying to maybe recreate as best as possible, as safe as possible, um, where appropriate, an environment like that. You know, a lot, a, a very famous one for doing it is obviously, you know, over, over at Man United. They talk a lot about how they, that's a massive part of the way they help their players develop, especially at a young age, where, you know, at any given point, you could have an under 12 playing alongside the under 16s and, and they might even have a cage, I think, if, if I remember rightly. So, how much attention has been paid to those sorts of things? Not enough. Um, I think, well, effectively, what we're trying to do is replace play, right? Like we used to do. I mean, these things are the root of all evil. Oh, yeah. trying to get, get it into picture. Yeah. Root of all evil. Um, because all they've done is allow kids to not go out and play with the board outside with their friends, but actually play against their friends in different houses um, and everything else. What we've actually lost is our ability to answer these things here. Sorry. You think it's just down to these things here, or do you think? No, I, I don't. I think it's part of a cultural change. Yeah. But I think what's happening is is those, those uh, mobile phones and, and technology have, have driven that. But because we've now got a, a almost a first or second generation of people who are used to that technology, and not playing mm. out with their mates um, and stuff, we've got that culture change of um, fewer and fewer going to do it. It's that style winning approach. In the same way that there's um, a belief in some uh, secondary school year seven teachers that the kids coming through from primary school don't have the motor skills that they used to in the old days. 
uh, so the ability to throw and catch or kick a ball has gone because we're they're not going outside and doing that. It's interesting you say that because you know I, I, um, I was actually thinking about this the other day and I think to myself, I literally I was, I was having a conversation with my daughter and she she I was asking her, well, what kind of sports do you do in PE? Um, and she was just like, well, we don't really do any sports. We just do like gymnastics and just roll about basically. Um, and she just to kind of paint a picture, she, you know, she's 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 seven. And and I think to myself, you know, I'm, I'm I'm bringing up all these memories of myself. Yeah, did you do you use do you use the parachute? Do you use this and to use that? And she's like bean bags and no, daddy. Like she's looking at me like I'm some some guy from like a hundred years ago. And I think to myself, what do you do then? Like, what, how, how do you not do any of these things? Like, is surely these are and it, it sounds it sounds so cliche, but these are basics that do help you just build your you know your your, your basic fundamental movement skills you know your, your abcs if you like yeah what, what are they doing to replace that and you know next thing i'm, I'm being told you know, I, i'm learning coding i'm saying you're seven years old how are you learning coding but you're not you're not playing in the parachute like how does it work it's interesting that, i mean there's there's clearly a, a a wider sort of health well-being obesity agenda mm. but it becomes more about physical activity and not physical mm. education right so so joe wicks has never taught physical education when he's done his, his zooms he's taught physical activity yeah um and we, we're getting a little bit lost about which is which but but as you say what we've got is we've got a, a lost generation to fundamental movement skills yeah. but arguably was that the role of the teacher anyway or should that have been something that happens extracurricular as it used to in the old days yeah when we used to go off and do these things i, th I think it's a great point i guess you know to kind of maybe bring things back on topic a little bit, then it, it, if we look at that participation piece, what are some of the key, uh, I guess, tips that you might have for a coach or a parent in some cases to support their child in identifying maybe what's best for them? Because obviously we, you know, we hear all the time about parents maybe wanting to live their dreams, if you like, through their children which is obviously one of the biggest challenges we have um, generally. Um, and it's often, oh, well, I want them to have a better life than me. So, yeah, but that might have been better from your perspective, but it might not be for them. Um, so it is about, you know, that participation and that engagement piece and coming right back to the top of the conversation about them having a smile on their face. Yeah. Um, so I guess what would some of the tips be from you to parents and then coaches or both um, collectively? around how to maybe support that and maybe what things to maybe, if you like, uh, snap out of and open your eyes to? I think certainly opportunity and inclusion are two things, both for coaches and for parents. So the broader range of opportunities you can give your kids, the better chance they've got of finding something they like and they're good at. Mm. Um, one of the things I'd really like to try and promote are more multi-sport clubs. I mean, we haven't got onto this. I'm going to go slightly off topic for, for a second. Is when you look at the likes of Barcelona and all the big European football clubs, a lot of the German clubs, they're all multi-sport clubs. Mm. And we in this country are only just catching up on that one. Yeah. So I, I have a great laugh every time Germany wins the World Cup or or Spain win the Euro Championships, all the coaches from over here run over there and go and sit looking over at the football pitch, seeing what's going on on the football pitch, yeah. ignoring behind them 
they've got kids playing handball, basketball, uh, a bit of tennis, a bit of futsal, everything else. I think also something to highlight on that, it's not just they're playing these other sports, they're playing the other sports to what I would consider to be of a, a, a much better standard than they would be playing over here as well. So Absolutely. It, then I guess uh, lend the question back to, is it the structure of the coach education systems in this country, which I guess, if you like, for lack of a better term, letting everyone down? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that, again, going back to, to the, the great late, the late great Pat Duffy at Sports Coach UK, trying to almost come up with a common level one. And then you specialise in your sports afterwards. It's sort of got a little bit lost where education has been a commodity that you can earn money from. Yeah, um, I would always say, and I say to all of my students, go off and do at least two or three different coaching awards. I, I think you, I know, you make a great point. And I think, you know, the concept of actually having a, 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 a globalised or generalised level one, if you like, um, it would be a fantastic idea. And I think if you look at, you know, certainly when I was doing my qualifications coming through, uh, f- as far as I was aware, across all the governing bodies, a level one qualification was often considered to be not a coaching qualification, but an actual assistant coaching qualification. And you actually had to go and do your level two before you can, I guess, be qualified as a coach, if you like. Yeah. Um, that seems to have got lost in, in, in along the way somewhere. I'm not sure where. Um, but then actually the qualifications ha- have, have obviously evolved in different ways. Um, but I think the concept of actually having a governing body, uh, a globalised qualification that just got, is just universally accepted, it's obviously a fantastic concept, but the reality is um, each sport, each governing body and each, you know, each of the coach education systems within these governing bodies are also, also going to have their own biases around what's actually effective and what's not based yeah. on the sport, based on whether it's a, a team or individual sport, whether it's a, uh, an invasion game or whatever it might be. There's too, I think there's too many um, crossover points, but I think it would be fascinating to see if there was a, a you know, a pathway somewhere or some, some sort of provision created for coaches to go and obtain some of this information that could be, and I, I guess, it, I guess it is there in some ways, but maybe not specifically stated, yeah, transferable messages from these qualifications that you're actually taking anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly things like how to how to coach kids, let alone the technical contact mm. uh, con- content, is going to be really useful. Um, and there are there are organisations and people. I think of the guys up at ICCE doing some work around this. Um, they're doing some pretty good stuff. Um, and some governing bodies get it, and some are beginning to try and partner up a little bit more. Mm. But we do we we have tended to. Maybe we've we've hyper specialized too much when it comes to coaching, and we're missing some of the generic stuff that could be used across to create more multi-sport coaches. Yeah, which would be good. But then we're tied in with some of the political uh, agendas and things that have been going on. So maybe 15, 20 years ago, you could do a primary PGCE and become a PE specialist within that. Yeah. But now we've just lost that. So primary PGC often only has a few hours of PE content because actually what they might be doing in a school is getting a coach in. Yeah. Or getting a graduate in. More more often now, I guess, is it still a pathway that can can be, uh, I guess, pursued? Um, You know, I guess if I was looking at it from a, a, a grander scale, 
are we thinking right maybe the best pathway to go is maybe for a school a school to employ someone who maybe has that pgc qualification but actually um supports them or if if they've already got it themselves through training of actually going through various different qualifications that can make them more a, a more well-rounded coach and yes absolutely of having different coaches and access to different coaches but as soon as you bring another company in um maybe you've got less control over what that system and what that scheme of work potentially might look like and whether it's right for the people within that environment if that makes sense yeah um, I, mean, I mean i guess in the uk we're really lucky because we we graduate so many sports science and sports coaching students yeah. each year that there should be enough based upon well if there's enough government money in the government coffers for for schools to pay for a coach mm. to actually get jobs and even if it's part-time jobs doing various things as i used to yeah um going in and doing a bit of coaching in different schools and, and giving a bit of a different experience as a specialist. Well, I think one of the challenges you have then, obviously, as well, Martin, is that when you've got qualification like sports science and you know, all these other sports-specific uh, degrees and things like that, I'm not, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if I actually know anyone that's done one of those degrees and actually then uh, gone into a primary school to actually get a work placement or do any experience in that setting. So... I get where you're coming from. Yeah, it's great to see that we've got loads of people qualified with these qualifications. But again, it, it leads us back to the previous point uh, of where the experience and maybe the specialism lies. Yeah. You might have got a strength and conditioning degree or you might have got a sports science degree, but actually where did you then go and do your placement? Where did you then go and get some exposure to what, what yeah. how this actually works and is implemented within a context? And what tends to happen from my experience is they end up going into uh, some form of elite setting, whether that be in a football academy, whether that be in a cricket background, whether that be a rugby environment, whatever the, whatever sport it may be, but it tends to be in some sort of academy pathway or centre of excellence or uh, maybe lower level at a senior in a senior environment. Yeah. Um, and that's a problem. Yeah, 100%. So I'm thinking, well, yeah, it almost then, it then begs the question, actually, well, is there any particular pathway that does support this effectively? Because, again, I'm now looking at, in the last couple of years, I've been working as a coach educator with the FA, uh, delivering coach education uh, across the level one, two, and supporting across the level three qualifications. And one of the things I have to I have to commend the FA on in terms of the way their pathway has shifted is actually this element where we as tutors, we go out and observe practitioners in their own environment, which I think is a fantastic um, tool of assessment, if you like. And there, they're getting guess hands-on experience in their environment at the specialist area that they want to work in potentially or maybe not depending on where they're at um but what they are getting is they're getting guided and i guess support and mentoring if you like around the context they're actually going to be working in yeah now obviously they might move on to another environment they might move to they might even you know whatever happens but the support they're given is based on what they're going to be doing uh, which obviously isn't always necessarily the case when you're on a degree or when you're, when you're or, or in any other qualification per se. Um, and I can't really speak too much in other sports, but I know specifically within this context that, that that's a massive uh, benefit to, I guess, the pathway. Um, and whilst that still may not benefit them fully, because the you know the other the other thing I often say to learners that come on the courses, you know, the, especially when I hear learners from different courses share their experiences. Oh well, oh, I sounded like you guys have done a different course. There, no, it's all the same course. Yeah. The content stays the same, but how how much uh, breadth we go, breadth we give you, um, and how much depth? Well, the breadth is the same. The depth is obviously going to be different based on the group in front of us as as tutors. But then also, 
you talked to earlier, the experiences of the coach. In this case, the coach educators, obviously, you know, if I'm now more well-versed with 14 to 19s, you're probably going to get a lot more from me if you're a 14 to 19 coach. Yeah. Then if you're a, a nine, to 10, 9 to 11s coach, expecting to get the same, you know, level of uh, depth, shall we say. So I guess, you know, in, in a long-winded way, <laughs> it comes on to my question and, how do we how do we how, how do we get around that? How you know what what could be done to kind of help um coaches, coach education, um, or just even people within these organizations as well? Because you know, on one hand you've got all these people going down that pathway, but on the other hand, you've also got a lot of people who aren't even qualified and have no exposure to what coach education actually looks like. Yeah. How do we start to get them to engage with some of this 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 information that we need them to to engage with to ensure that there is a good level of engagement, successful engagement, and good participation at a young age? Sorry for the ramble. Yeah, no, no, that's fine, uh, and I get exactly where you're coming from. With that I think the like say I mentioned the FA before, and I think they've done they have done a good job. The really interesting uh, thing for me with that is is as you said, there's still a bias from the from the coach educator who's out there. So in a sense, why do we not use more people within, uh, with, it, with the school background to also liaise, to work with the coach educator yeah. to then give that a bit of context? So you, you've got that little bit of educationalist in there and you've got that little bit of coaching in there. Obviously, there's a cost impact. Yeah, but also another thing I would throw out there is that you've actually got the cost impact, but also you're then now relying on sourcing maybe the right individual from the from the education field so you, again which then opens up you in, with an old, another can of worms in all right do we now set up courses that are set specifically for coaches working with this age group and then not only coaches working with this age group but actually we've got coaches working with 14 to 19 year olds that are aged between 18 and 25 and then we've got another course for those that are aged between 18 or 25 and 35 or whatever so i guess you know there's probably too many variables and too many uh, differences that to kind of i guess uh, to come up with one solution for yeah um, and there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all so which, which is I think what we have to accept as well yeah but but I think in a sense you've got there's two things there one is context is king yeah um, so we've always got to work out that context and by doing that what we've got to become as, as coaches as coach educators as anybody involved in this are chameleons yeah to make sure that we can really truly yeah. adapt to that environment but we can only do that from experience 100% uh, Martin, you make some great points, and you know, honestly, there's is some fascinating things that, uh, that we've discussed so far, and uh, and definitely given me a lot of food for thought in terms of ways in which I could potentially uh, have a different impact on the people that I come across with. Um, but I am mindful of time, and I'm sure you know if you're open to, it, I'm more than happy to have a part two at some point. But just Absolutely. in 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 just just by joining me today, you know, you've made yourself part of the coaches network. Um, so I'm, cu I'm curious to know from your perspective then, you know, what's one message that you want to leave our audience with? What I think, I mean, whether you're um, a, a coach or a parent or anything else, the one thing I would actually like people to do is really reflect back on your own experiences and think of those really good moments, maybe when you were playing or coaching, whatever you've been doing, when it's really worked and it's, it's made you at one with everything else around you, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and try to understand that and maybe why that's happened and then take it forwards to where you are now and what difference you can make from your from your own ontological epistemological background so your own own development itself um, because what happens in our past affects what we do in the future mm. 
and if we can understand that better, then we can influence the future much better as well. No, fantastic. I think you make a great point there. And I'm, I'll be very keen to kind of get a part two on this, but, um, and I'm sure there's gonna be loads of questions off the back of what we, what we've discussed. Um, and should anyone want to get in touch with you off the back of this, is there any way they can do that? Uh, yeah. I mean, Twitter's probably the best thing um, at Dr. Martin Toms. You can find me there. I'm always happy to get engaged in discussion debate on that. No problem at all. Awesome. Well, there you have it guys. Uh, another great discussion on the coaches network. Uh, thank you to my guest, Martin. Thank you. Been a pleasure. There you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.